Woot Woot, we are back. Welcome to the Cook County Emergency Medicine Chapter Summary Podcast. You know what gets my heart racing? Well, of course my Fabergé egg collection. But you know what else gets my heart racing? That's right. Cardiac emergencies. I'm full-on SVT excited about this episode. We'll be covering syncope, valvular emergencies, and cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Our first talk is coming from Ari Edelheit, who is going to teach us about the science of falling out. Ari, get your teacher on. Who's the doc who's a diagnosing fee with all his patients? Ari. Oh, yeah. Who's the doc with the steady hand and the real law differential? Ari. The doc who gets confused with blue team patients. Sorry. Oh yeah. I'm talking about Ari. Alright guys, so today we're going to be talking about syncope and near syncope, or falling out. So straight out of Tintinelli's, syncope is defined as a brief loss of consciousness. It's associated with an inability to maintain postural tone, spontaneously and completely resolves without intervention. Neurosyncope is similar in both physiology and carries the same risks as syncope. So here is some pathophysiology. Really, no matter the cause, it all comes down to a lack of blood flow or nutrient delivery to the brain. Causes are generally divided into cardiac, neural or reflex-mediated, orthostatic, medications, and psychiatric causes. So let's go through each of these one at a time. If syncope is due to lack of blood flow, then the heart really is the straw that stirs the drink. Cardiac syncope is a 10% six-month mortality rate, So special attention to this can really help save lives in the emergency department. Cardiac causes are usually broken up into structural uh, causes and dysrhythmias. Structural causes really tend to show themselves in the setting of exertion. Some of these include our hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, most commonly seen in patients younger than 60. Aortic stenosis, um, really seen uh, especially in elderly patients. And this is one of the few times that a good auscultation exam in the emergency department can provide relevant information and help guide your disposition. You can have acute outflow obstruction, either by a saddle embolus, or you can have some cardiac tamponade, not allowing the right side of your heart to fill properly. Ischemia and heart failure can also cause hypokinesis and severely limit your cardiac output. In the category of dysrhythmias, some of them, if you don't think about them, they can quite easily be missed. So when you get that EKG from your syncope patient, As always, we're looking initially for major ischemic changes, ST deviations, other evidence of acute MI. Next, we're going to look at the rate. Is it fast or slow? Tachy or bradyarrhythmias can adversely affect cardiac output. Brigada syndrome is another one that we're going to be looking for. This is a genetic sodium channelopathy, and it's most commonly seen on EKGs as a right bundle branch block with coved ST elevations with T-wave inversions in V1 through 3. Long QT syndrome is another one. This can either be familial or acquired, especially acquired through certain medications. There's a pretty big laundry list of things of meds that can cause this. We won't really touch on those here. Wolf-Parkinson-White is the other one. That's going to show up as a shortened PR interval on your EKGs. Sometimes you'll catch that delta wave, and this is due to an aberrant atrioventricular conduction pathway. Low blood volumes can also cause syncope via the orthostatic mechanism. These patients are going to have history of fluid losses, lots of vomiting or diarrhea, or acute hemorrhage. Acute hemorrhage would be like your ectopic pregnancies, 
um, or your older males with abdominal pain and that leak in AAA. Neurally reflex or reflex mediated uh, mechanisms, also known as vasovagal. Pathophysiologically, it's an inappropriate vasodilation, bradycardia, or both as a result of inappropriate vagal or sympathetic tone. In common language, it's really just called freaking the hell out. And these patients will describe a sense of warmth, some lightheadedness, maybe with some sweating and nausea. And this slow, progressive onset usually suggests a vasovagal cause, especially in the presence of a displeasing stimulus, prolonged standing, overly crowded or warm places. Man, I really thought with that displeasing stimulus comment, he was going to make a joke about Quincy's giant back hole. Yes, that is, is quite the displeasing stimulus. Situational syncope is another possibility. Oh, this is probably a lot lower on our priority list as uh, emergency medicine physicians. Tintinelli also describes this carotid sinus hypersensitivity. This is more common in older patients. They get ischemic heart disease and they usually have malignancies. So be very careful if you're choosing to discharge one of these patients with this diagnosis. Next up are some neurologic causes of syncope. These are rare and they're usually associated with exam findings. Um, Usually, it's going to affect your posterior circulation, and patients will complain of diplopia, vertigo, and nausea. Subclavian steel syndrome is a rare cause, and this is from narrowing of the subclavian artery proximal to the vertebral artery, such that exercise that ipsilateral upper extremity will create a demand for increased blood flow and essentially steal blood away from the posterior circulation, and that's when your patients are going to start having their symptoms. Finally, and probably the one that most of us think about, is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's actually a rare cause of syncope, and when this happens, there's usually an associated focal deficit, there's altered mental status, or there's an associated headache to help guide our, our management. Lastly, medications can cause or exacerbate underlying conditions. It's especially true of patients just started on beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, maybe they're overdiuresed, or maybe they just started alpha blockers like tamsulosin. In pregnant patients, be, be very wary because sometimes a gravid uterus can slide over and compress the IVC and limit venous return. Also, always consider PE and uh, ectopic pregnancies in these patients. And obviously, this goes without saying, always be extra cautious of elderly patients. So now that we have all these potential causes in mind, let's take a brief look at the workup of syncopal patients. As always, starting with the patient's vital signs and stability are of utmost importance. Initial management of that resus patient with VTEC on the monitor is quite different than that blue team patient asking for a sandwich who says they had a syncopal episode the day before. Seriously, be cautious because these well-appearing patients can still have a really sinister cause to their syncope. Solid history is key here, and identifying preceding symptoms are necessary. Is the patient having chest pain or shortness of breath or palpitations? Um, are they having abdominal pain? Do they have a, a large um, headache that came on just before they had a syncopal episode? Also, inquiring about exertional symptoms. Were there any witnesses to the event? Did they see any seizure activity? Is there any, any head or neck trauma? These are all important. Past medical history is also important, and this is especially key when we're trying to risk stratify our otherwise benign sounding syncopal histories. Also, patients who are taking anticoagulants should also trigger you to consider getting uh, some imaging as well. Asking about family history can guide workup as well, especially in your younger patients with syncope. The exam should focus on evidence of head trauma, focal neuro deficits, are there stigmata of, of heart failure, are there really loud murmurs, is one leg twice the size of the other, or do they have that not-so-subtle gravid uterus on the abdominal exam? All these workups are going to include EKG, CBC, BMP, and a UPREG. Let the history and physical really guide the need for troponins or CTs. 
In general, a non-con of the head is only indicated if there are focal neural deficits, they have that associated headache, they're taking anticoagulants, or there's evidence of head trauma in your exam. As for a troponin, history of chest pain, lots of comorbidities for coronary artery disease, elderly patients, maybe some poor historians, and definitely abnormal EKGs should all prompt the use of a troponin. In general, it takes a relatively large amount of ischemia to cause either dysrhythmia or hypokinesis profound enough to cause that decrease in cardiac output and cause syncope or near syncope. So therefore, your otherwise healthy 23 year old patients with the preceding aura, slow onset, and low-risk comorbidities probably don't need that troponin. So even with all this information in hand, usually about 40% of patients who come to the emergency department with these complaints really won't have an identifiable cause to their syncope. And disposition can be tough. It's based on the workup. It's based on the patient's overall risk for a cardiac or neurologic etiology to their syncope. And this is really where we make our money as emergency physicians. Some people like to use the San Francisco syncope rule. It's got the mnemonic CHESS. This stands for CHF. Does the patient have a hematocrit less than 30%? Is there an abnormal EKG? Is there systolic blood pressure less than 90 on their triage vitals? Or are they short of breath? Some cons for this score is it really only looked at seven-day adverse outcomes for these patients, and it had a sensitivity around 86%. So there's definitely plenty of room for clinical judgment here. ASEP guidelines for syncope also recommend uh, admission for patients with a history of ventricular arrhythmias or exam evidence of significant valvular disease. They define abnormal EKGs as evidence of ischemia, arrhythmias, new bundle branch blocks, or prolonged QTCs. All right, guys, that's it for Syncopy here. Thanks for taking a listen. Good luck to you all in the in-service. And as always, have a blessed day. Class of 2018 representing Awesome Talk by Ari. A couple of quick things to remember about Syncopy. One of the hardest things about Syncopy and near Syncopy is getting the history. Was this Syncopy or actually an unwitnessed seizure? Are they actually near syncope, or was this paroxysmal vertigo? Usually we can figure this out, but here are a couple history and physical exam pearls to help you out. Syncope can result in tonic-clonic movements, just like seizure, but in syncope, these movements always occur after the loss of consciousness and last for no more than 15 seconds and are not associated with any post-event confusion. Furthermore, if your patient has a tongue lack following syncope versus seizure, the tongue lack of syncope will typically be at the apex or front of the tongue, where in seizure, the tongue lack is typically on the lateral aspect. Next, we always ask patients if they feel like they are going to pass out or if the room is spinning, in which the response is generally either both or they just blankly stare at you. I found that having the patient act out the event in front of me, describing step by step, second by second what happened, helps to clarify these confusing histories. Moving on, remember that the workup of syncope and near syncope is the same. Just because your patient didn't go down doesn't mean that your patient doesn't have something serious, so work it up. In your workup, the chest mnemonic is helpful to rule in patients with cardiogenic syncope, but ultimately is incomplete and cannot be used to rule out dangerous pathology. CHESS stands for C, CHF, H, hematocrit less than 30, E, abnormal EKG, S, shortness of breath, and S again, systolic blood pressure less than 90. 
Additionally, make sure to ask patients about syncope on exertion, as this is a harbinger of cardiogenic syncope badness. EKG, electrolytes, and hemoglobin are gonna make the foundation of your workup. Make sure you spend a fair amount of time looking at the EKG. Let's just quickly go through some things you run into on the boards when it comes to EKGs and syncope. A patient with a history of WPW will have what findings on EKG? Yeah, that's right, a short PR interval and delta waves. What about your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient? Nailed it, needle-like Q waves in the lateral leads and voltage criteria LVH. What about Brugada? Yep, typically RSR pattern with associated SD elevation, sometimes only brought on during stress. And long QT? Well, this one's easy, yeah, they have a long QT. And what about this doozy? Arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. Arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia is a congenital disorder that often unmasks itself during exertion. It commonly presents as syncope or sudden death, especially in athletes. The typical EKG of these patients will have either an epsilon wave, which is a small upward notch immediately following the QRS, or a prolonged upsloping S wave in the precordial leads. If the EKG and the rest of your workup is normal, patient is not in the extremes of age, not pregnant, doesn't have multiple confounding comorbidities, and looks well, the patient can be discharged home. Don't forget to road test your patient though. You don't want to be the doc who discharges someone home just for them to syncopize in the waiting room on their way out. Are you gonna faint? Are you gonna faint? You need to sit down? Do you need a glass of water? I know that last one was good, but try to relax because we got another amazing talk for you. We're going to go to our second esteemed PGY2 podcaster of the episode. Dr. Amira Hamid will be covering valvular emergencies. Amira, the floor is yours. And now... Standing five foot three, a second year phenom from your hometown, Chicago. Her dancing has been confused with an aggressive pseudo seizure. Put your hands together for Amira Hamid. What's up, everybody? It's me, Amira, coming at you with the chapter on valvular disorders. First, we'll talk about what to do after diagnosing a new murmur, which is a really great topic because I think this is the only new bit of information we're learning in this chapter. The rest is just step one review. Next, we'll breeze through a review on valvular disorders, a quick pathophys, clinical features, and helpful diagnostics tools, as well as treatments. Lastly, we'll briefly look at what we do with special caveats, i.e. prosthetic valves and pregnant women with murmurs. So, Getting started, you guys remember how to grade murmurs? That's right, I didn't think so. Real quick so you can actually document what you heard, one and two are super low key, with one being a little bitty faint murmur, and two still being quiet, but immediately heard upon putting the stethoscope on the chest. Three is where things start getting loud, with three being moderately loud, and four being loud. Now five and up is where things start get a little crazy, with five being so loud that when you take the stethoscope partially off the chest, you can still hear the murmur, and six being so loud that you can hear with the stethoscope not even touching the chest. Obviously, the louder, the more concerning. Now let's jump into our algorithm on what to do when we hear a new murmur. 
So basically, the first step is to determine whether it's a diastolic or systolic murmur. If it's diastolic, then that's always pathologic, and the patient will need to be referred for an echo in the future. If it's systolic, then it depends on the severity of the murmur. Loud murmurs, grade threes and above, will also need to be referred for an echo, while quiet murmurs, grades two and below, can be sent for echo only if they're symptomatic or associated with abnormal physical exam, EKG, or chest x-ray. If they're asymptomatic without any abnormal findings, then stop right there because no further workup is indicated. And that's that for diagnosing new murmurs. Moving right along to our second section and what majority of this chapter is about, the valve review. Starting with our buddy, the mitral valve. Mitral stenosis, of course, we know the most common cause, rheumatic fever, causing scarring, fusion, calcification, and limited mobility of the valve. This results in increased left atrial pressure, which leads to pulmonary congestion, pulmonary hypertension, blah, 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 essentially left heart failure, which can then be followed by right heart failure. Another complication is that patients can develop AFib due to the dilatation of the atria. Features of mitral stenosis include exertional dyspnea, hemoptysis from dilatation of the pulmonary vessels, and heart failure. Systemic emboli can also be seen in up to a third of these patients. Physical exam findings include that mid-diastolic rumble and a loud S1 as the mitral valve snaps closed. On EKG, we can see notched or biphasic P waves and right axis deviation. On chest x-ray, we may see straightening of the left heart border, indicating left atrial enlargement as well as signs of pulmonary edema, with treatment being diuretics and valve repair and or replacement. Sticking with our buddy the mitral valve, we're cruising right along to mitral valve regurge, which can either be chronic or acute. Most commonly being chronic, it's typically tolerated by the patient as it leads to a gradual onset of left atrial enlargement with simultaneous increase in the stroke volume. Normal cardiac output is maintained and the patients are pretty cool. Acute is less common, sudden in onset, and disastrous. All badness here. The valvorous components rupture, causing sudden backflow back into the left atrium, leading to immediate onset of flash pulmonary edema, cardiogenic shock, and possible cardiac arrest. Common causes include MI causing chordae tendinary rupture, papillary muscle rupture, or valve rupture secondary to infective endocarditis. Tintinellis also says that it can be spontaneous, which is extra spooky, y'all. As far as diagnosis, acute mitral rigor should be included in every patient with new onset pulmonary edema, but unfortunately is missed sometimes as the murmur may be inaudible due to the raging tachypnea and the raging pulmonary edema. It should be strongly considered if the patient does not respond to your conventional therapy or if an MI is noted, particularly in the anterior leads. So do yourself a favor, be a Dr. Cosby Baylitz, and place an ultrasound probe on that chest and check it out. As far as the physical exam, findings include high-pitched apical holosystolic murmur best heard over the fifth intercostal space of the left thorax. An S3 or S4 gallop may also be appreciated. On EKG, we can see left atrial enlargement and left ventricular hypertrophy and chronic mitral regurge. So what's the treatment? Well, for acute regurge, we're given O2, we're given nitrates, we're getting Lasix, we're intubating like the bosses that we are, if indicated. And your goal is to try to reduce the afterload to assist with forward flow from the left ventricle. Nitroprusside can be used for this. You can also add dobutamine and dopamine drips, which can be used for hypotension. And if it's looking grim, consider an aortic balloon pump to improve that forward flow. Lastly... In the setting of AFib, these patients will need rate control with heparin therapy followed by warfarin therapy with an INR goal of 2 to 3 given their high risk for embolism. And just when you thought you couldn't get enough of the mitral valve, there's mitral valve prolapse, which is the billowing of the mitral leaflets into the left atrium during systole. This can occur with or without regurge, usually due to the myxomatous degeneration of the mitral valve, classically in your Marfan's patient or your thin young woman. 
is usually heard as a mid-systolic click and is not even associated with any increased risk of AFib, syncope, stroke, or sudden death. In fact, it's the most common valvular heart disease in industrialized countries. Patients may present with palpitations, anxiety, or chest pain. The treatment is reassurance unless it's associated symptoms or regurgitation present. If they're symptomatic, you can try beta blockers and ask them to refrain from all the fun stuff, all the alcohol, the tobacco, the caffeine. If they have risk factors for embolization, such as AFib, previous stroke, age greater than 65, mitral regurg, hypertension, or heart failure, then daily aspirin therapy is recommended as well. If regurgitation is present, then patients will also need endocarditis prophylaxis. Now that was a mouthful on mitral valves, but I promise remainder is short and sweet onto the aortic valve. Aortic stenosis. Features of aortic stenosis include the classic triad of dyspnea, chest pain, and syncope induced by exertion. Exam usually reveals a harsh systolic ejection murmur. A paradoxically split or single S2 may be heard due to the stiff delay closing of the valve as well. An S3 or S4 may also be appreciated. Findings also include diminished carotid pulse with delayed upstroke and narrow pulse pressure. As far as the EKG, we may see some left ventricular hypertrophy. So treatment for aortic stenosis, if symptomatic, admit these people for surgery. These patients have a 75% mortality within the next three years. We can also use oxygen and diuretics to treat the pulmonary edema. And if these patients develop AFib, the result is catastrophic. The left ventricle is completely dependent on the diastolic filling from the left atrium, and when that's knocked out, they're going down like Ronda Rousey. This patient needs to be cardioverted and started on anticoagulation. Obviously, guys, this patient will need to be admitted. That's it for stenosis. Moving right along to aortic regurg. Just like with the mitral valve, this can be acute or chronic, with acute being complete and total badness, and chronic being not so bad. With chronic aortic regurg, a nice normal cardiac output is maintained. Acute aortic regurg is usually due to the sudden dissection, trauma, or infective endocarditis leading to sudden onset of left heart failure, poor cardiac output, cardiogenic shock followed by cardiac arrest. EKG most commonly shows left ventricular hypertrophy if the regurgitation is chronic, but it may also show a STEMI if an aortic dissection is the cause of your acute regurg. Treatment for a chronic aortic regurg include vasodilators such as ACE inhibitors and nifedipine, typically began by the patient's BCP. Dispo is to admit any patients who are severely symptomatic. Now, as far as treatment for acute aortic regurg, purely surgical and death is common. Resuscitation goals are to decrease the afterload with drugs like nitroprusside and increase the forward flow with ionotropes like dopamine and dopamine. Of note, beta blockers should be avoided in these patients so not to blunt the tachycardia that the heart obviously needs to improve its cardiac output. Also of huge note, major key here, avoid the aortic balloon pumps in these guys because you'll be looking a plump fool when you drown the patient in his own pulmonary edema by worsening the regurgitation. All right, so now we finished with the aortic and mitral valves. Now for a quick line or two on the right side of valve disease, which is a lot less interesting. Tricuspid regurg can be due to IV drug use, as we all know, usually secondary to staph aureus, or it could be due to chronic lung diseases such as COPD, chronic PEs, or left heart failure. Tricuspid stenosis is usually due to carcinoid syndrome or rheumatic fever. Pulmonary stenosis is typically congenital, such as the tetralogy of Fallot, or can be caused by carcinoid syndrome as well. Pulmonary regurg is rare, usually secondary to pulmonary hypertension. Features include signs of right heart failure, which we all know includes JVD, hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, and lower extremity edema. Now for the final, the last, the ultimate section in the valve disorder chapter. 
first a quick blurb on the prosthetic valves and then all the pregnant ladies all the pregnant ladies shout out to all the ladies in the program woo woo representing for the pgy2 women right here on the podcast channeling my inner beyonce now back to these valves replacements can either be bioprosthetic or mechanical the bioprosthetics are usually human bovine or the swine if that's your thing and the pros are that they don't require anticoagulation but they do fail more often the mechanical valves require warfarin therapy which is a bummer and even with anticoagulation the rate of thromboembolism is still one to two percent a year thromboembolism is more common with the mitral valve than the aortic valve replacement so the inr goal for mechanical mitral valve is 2.5 to 3.5 while the aortic valve inr goal is your regular two to three Other complications of the valve include endocarditis, occurring most frequently during the two-month post-op period, with the most common organism being staph epidermidis, followed by staph aureus. That damn staph. Most common after this two-month interval is strep viridians and bugs similar to those affected the native valves. Major key alert. In any patient with previous valve repair presenting with acute onset of respiratory distress, pulmonary edema, and cardiogenic shock, consider valve failure, massive valve clot, or torn bioprosthesis. Now let's switch gears and say that your patient is super therapeutic with their INR and they've been popping that warfarin like candy or doing one of those million things that affects warfarin therapy and you need to reverse their INR. Well, an INR of 5 to 10 without evidence of bleed should be treated by withholding warfarin and giving 1 to 2.5 of PO vitamin K. Parenteral therapy should be avoided to prevent overshooting and overcorrecting. Now if a severe bleed is noted, then obviously that goes the hell out the window and you slam them with FFP. Now for our very last section as far as our pregnant mommies. Remember that their cardiac output increases due to the increased stroke volume and heart rate. Their blood volume increases by like 50% and they also have less systemic vascular resistance. Basically just know that some murmurs grades 1 through 2 may be normal for pregnant mommies. And know that previous symptomatic murmurs may lead to clinical decompensation after pregnancy. All right, Amira, we want to hear you more. That was fantastic. Let's just do a quick shotgun review of the valve disorders one more time. Mitral stenosis. This is a diastolic murmur. Leads to pulmonary edema, pulmonary hypertension, and heart failure. Give diuretics and arrange operative repair. Mitral regurge. This is a high-pitched holosystolic murmur. Acute mitral regurge is bad news bears. These patients need nitrates, inotropy, and potentially a intra-aortic balloon bump. Mitral valve prolapse. This results in a mid-systolic click and generally is asymptomatic. On board questions, however, patients will generally present with vague anxiety and palpitations. Aortic stenosis. This is a heart systolic ejection murmur. Critical stenosis, patients will have dyspnea and syncope on exertion. The literature is constantly changing on how to manage these patients acutely in the ED until you can get them to the CT surgeon's trusty hands. But basically, you don't do much. You just give them O2 and Lasix, maybe some inotropes. What about acute aortic regurge? This is a diastolic murmur. These patients are super, super sick and do not do well. Provide afterload reduction and inotropy. Do not, I repeat, do not put an intraortic balloon pump in or you will kill these guys. Moving on to replaced valves. Bioprostheses like cow valves, pig valves, or cadaver valves fail more often but don't require anticoagulation. 
whereas mechanical valves fail less but require lifelong anticoagulation. Mitral valves more commonly result in thromboembolism, and so an INR of 2.5 to 3.5 is needed for the mitral valve, whereas aortic valve prosthesis just need the normal 2 to 3 INR goal. Again, bioprostheses fail more often, but don't require anticoagulations. Mechanical valves fail less, but require lifelong anticoagulation. All right, let's just finish with a quick pop quiz. So, patient has a high-pitched holosystolic murmur. What is this? This is most likely mitral regurge. What about a harsh systolic ejection murmur? This is most likely aortic stenosis. What about a mid-systolic click in an anxious patient? That's right, that's most likely mitral valve prolapse. I am diaphoretic and my chest is killing me after those two amazing talks, but I ain't stopping. Next, I'm gonna quickly cover cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The mind of a Neanderthal, the athletic ability of Helen Keller, and a morphinoid body habitus. Please welcome John Hardwick. Let's talk about cardiogenic pulmonary edema. In my opinion, cardiogenic pulmonary edema is just like Napoleon ice cream. It comes in three flavors. Hypotensive, also known as cardiogenic shock, normotensive, also known as a typical CHF exacerbation, and hypertensive, also known as flash pulmonary edema. So let's start with the easy one. The normotensive patient with cardiogenic pulmonary edema, or our typical run-of-the-mill CHF exacerbation patient. As long as they are not severely dyspneic, their workup and management is pretty straightforward. Search for a cause of the exacerbation and give diuretics. So check an EKG, chest x-ray, UA, basic labs, troponin. If all is normal, package them up, give them some Lasix, and get them to the general medical floor. Now let's move on to something more interesting. The patient who is hypotensive with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. We have a name for this. This is called cardiogenic shock. Scott Weingart has a great approach to cardiogenic shock. First, he asks himself, what is causing the cardiogenic failure? Is it simply the result of a weak or ineffective myocardium? In other words, is the pump just not squeezing hard enough? Or is it something else? Is there a rate problem? Is the patient severely bradycardic? Are they tachycardic? Is this high output failure? Is there a non-perfusing rhythm present? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, then go ahead and treat the rate problem. Pace the bradycardic patient. Try some DILT on the AFib with RVR. Shock the patient in VTAC. Whatever the situation calls for, do it and reassess. Get an EKG on these patients. Is there a STEMI? If so, get cardiology on the phone and this patient to the cath lab as soon as possible. Don't forget to listen to the chest. Your grandma paid a lot of money for that Littman for your birthday. Don't let her down. Listen for murmurs. 
If there is a loud murmur on exam, you need to get on the horn immediately and call CT surgery. Finally, ask yourself, is this secondary to a tox ingestion? Is this a beta blocker overdose? Is this a calcium channel blocker overdose? If you can't find a rapidly reversible cause of the cardiogenic shock, then get these patients on a presser. Your typical board answer for the presser of choice in cardiogenic shock is dobutamine, but be very careful in using dobutamine in the hypotensive patient. Dobutamine stimulates both beta receptors. Beta-1 is great. It kicks the heart right in the pants and gets it pumping harder and faster. But dobutamine also hits beta-2, which leads to peripheral vasodilation and therefore worsening hypotension. To address this problem, many argue to start norepinephrine first when the systolic blood pressure is less than 90, and then start dobutamine once the norepi has increased the systolic blood pressure. Others will say, why use two drugs when you can just use one? What drug would that be? Dopamine. Dopamine is readily available in the ER and dopamine is an inotrope and peripheral vasoconstrictor, but it's got a downside. Studies have shown that it increases the rate of life-threatening arrhythmias. Whatever your choice, choose it quickly, get the patient on the presser, and move on. While the IVs are being placed and your presser set up, you should be setting up for intubation. You've already determined that there's no rapidly reversible cause. Their heart is failing and it's not going to magically get better in the next five minutes. So anticipate that they are not going to rapidly improve and intubate these patients early. Atomidate, our most cardiac neutral induction agent, would be a good choice in inducing these patients for intubation. These patients' disposition is pretty easy. They're going to end up in the CCU. So get cardiology involved early. Now let's move on to our final group in the cardiogenic pulmonary edema algorithm. Our severely hypertensive patient with cardiogenic pulmonary edema, also known as flash pulmonary edema. These patients will be severely hypertensive. Often, systolic blood pressures are greater than 200 but the process can occur with SBPs as low as 150. These patients are typically gasping for breath and look terrible. They need aggressive preload and afterload reduction and they need it quickly. We can do this in two ways. One is with nitro. We start with sublingual nitro. One 0.4 milligram tab under the tongue can be given and you can repeat that three times if necessary. Without much exception, most patients aren't going to turn around with just the sublingual nitro and will need to be put on a drip. Now, one tab of sublingual nitro is generally absorbed and exerts its effects over five minutes, resulting in the equivalent of an 80 microgram per minute drip. So when you start the nitro drip, you can feel pretty comfortable starting at near that rate. While giving nitro, we're going to be calling our respiratory therapist to get this patient on BiPAP. BiPAP works on three prongs. One, it decreases preload. Two, it decreases afterload. And three, it increases oxygenation. So to review, both BiPAP and nitro decrease preload and allow the patient's heart to be on a more favorable spot on the Frank-Starling curve, allowing the heart to pump more effectively 
pushing blood forward instead of into the lungs. Preload reductions occur with standard BiPAP and high doses of nitro. You can further provide preload reduction with 1.25 IV enalapril. This typically works over about 10 minutes, but the evidence on this is lacking. Lasix can also be given, but ultimately doesn't have a huge role in the acute management of hypertensive flash pulmonary edema. All right, so let's review. There are three types of cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Hypotensive, also known as cardiogenic shock, you treat with pressors and you intubate. You have the normotensive patients who are your typical CHF exacerbations. You give them some IV Lasix and get them to the floor. And then you have your hypertensive cardiogenic pulmonary edema patients, also known as your flash pulmonary edema patients. These patients need preload and afterload reduction with nitro and BiPAP. That's all. All right, another podcast in the books. Cardiovert me, I'm done. Big thanks to Ari and Amira for their amazing talks. If you too want to make a podcast, send me an email at hardwickjohn2013 at gmail.com. As always, this podcast does not reflect the views of John Stroger Hospital, Cook County Human Health Services, or the Stroger Emergency Medicine Residency. Until next time, we'll see ya.